0: Welcome to PPLS Perspectives, a podcast bringing students and academics together to explore the research carried out by the University of Edinburgh School of Philosophy, Psychology and Language Sciences and the impact this work has on society.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to PPLS Perspectives, the rebranded forward-thinking podcast through this podcast we shed the light on the work of our faculty members why their work is important and the impact that it has this is episode three of the podcast episode one was a pilot one about the philosophy of grief and then uh, the second episode was about accent bias if you haven't had the chance to listen to the previous two episodes i would highly recommend listening to them my name is aya Watt, a linguistic second year phd student here at ppls my work focuses on understanding speech production in relation to autism. Specifically, I explore prosodic features of speech of autistic adults. Today, I am joined by my supervisor, <laughs> Dr. Biranger Digard. Uh, Beranger is a senior teaching coordinator in the Department of Psychology until early March, then postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Clinical Brain Sciences. Uh, she received her PhD in Psychiatry from the University of Edinburgh. Then she received the ESRC Fellowship in the Department of Psychology. Beranger has received multiple awards as well. From these I mentioned the Barbara Northern Prize uh, Prize from the British Federation for Women Graduates in 2018. Then uh, the runner-up position uh, in Neurodiverse Research of the Year, celebrating Neurodiversity Awards Genius Within in 2021, and then most recently, the British Science Association Lectureship Awards in the field of social sciences in 2023. Most of uh, Villanueva's research so far has been on bilingualism in autism, especially looking at how knowing several languages shapes the way autistic and non-autistic people understand social information and relate to other people, looking at this process in terms of lived experiences, mental skills, and brain networks. Uh, We are going to talk mainly about bilingualism and autism in this uh, episode, however I'm going to walk you through the structure of this this podcast. So similarly to previous episodes, I will be asking Biranger five main questions with discussions in between, starting with an elevator pitch through which Birangère can provide us with an outline of her work comprehensively and briefly in a time enough to share an elevator, which is approximately two minutes. So without any further ado, to talk more about bilingualism in autism, Birangère, can you please uh, give us the elevator pitch of your research?
0: Okay, so this is going to be for my PhD research. I'm going to shift a bit in the future, but uh, so my research so far basically was around bilingualism Mm -hmm. and autism. The basic idea there was that uh, we know that uh, the brain, autophotistic people, make sense of of social information a bit differently to a neurotypical brain. Um, it can be seen as like them having difficulty, but it's more about just a different way of uh, functioning. We know as well that uh, when it comes to a neurotypical brain, apparently knowing several languages sort of helps the brain in uh, developing this skill that is called social cognition, which mm-hmm. is how we make sense of social information. So this same skill, social cognition, that works differently in autism uh seems to benefit from growing up with several languages in a neurotypical development in a standard development um so i was wondering if maybe uh actually bilingualism knowing several languages could also have the same sort of effects on an autistic brain uh as it does in on a neurotypical brain and it was a very um sort of odd idea originally because actually currently when a bilingual family in the uk uh, has a child who's diagnosed with autism most professionals so clinicians teacher will advise the parent not to raise their child bilingually. they will tell the family to just use a single language because we believe that bilingualism is just too much for an autistic child even though it goes against the hypothesis that maybe an autistic brain can benefit from bilingualism. So this was why I decided to do my research, uh, making sure that actually, okay, bilingualism, is it good, is it bad? Does it do nothing at all uh, for autistic people? And instead of just using a very much, like a binary approach of bilingualism, I wanted to do this in a very multi-dimensional way, looking at all of the different ways one can be bilingual and looking at social processing from, the real life, the real social experiences, to what the brain does in terms of uh, brain activation. So this was my research.
1: Okay, thank you very much for that explanation, Beranger. Um The next question comes out naturally, what inspired you to carry out this research? Okay, so the origin story of my PhD might be a
0: bit odd. Um, so I, I took a gap here after my master's degree Uh, to think of a project to do for my PhD because I didn't want to like just rush into a PhD um, that I wouldn't be sure is something that I really want to do and so yeah I decided to take some time before the PhD and um, originally my idea was to do something on uh, bilingualism and dementia because so I did my masters in France uh, in Lyon and Over there there's a lot of research on dementia and stuff so like it was a bit of a logical field to focus on and i wanted to do bilingualism because um my family is bilingual i'm uh, my mom is from spain and while studying the brain uh during my masters i had never really uh everything that i was learning just i could see that it would not uh, uh, entirely matched with my own experience um in terms of language and stuff, so this is why I wanted to do okay something to do with bilingualism, and logically because of what I've been trained to do, do something about dementia. So this was my main idea, and I actually applied for a PhD uh, that I and I got funding for it on uh, bilingualism and dementia. But at the same time, as I was working through these applications, one day randomly, I'm. Um, my mum called me down for like coffee after lunch and she was watching tv so i watched tv with her and i came across this five minute interview uh of an autistic writer who was talking about his new books so for context in france we don't really at the, at the time we didn't really talk about autism it was not a, something that was presented in the media at all so i knew very little about autism and in five minutes this guy talking about this book um joseph chauvinic was the name of the writer I was mesmerized uh, and the next day I bought the book, I read it in one day and I knew this was what I wanted to do. Uh, It was kind of love at first sight with uh, this topic. Um, And so I decided to find, okay, something to do with bilingualism but autism and ideally from a cognition brain kind of perspective because this was my background. I, and I searched try and wide on PubMed only to figure out that there was nothing out there. Um, there was nothing on cognition at the time in Autism and Bilingualism and there was like one person doing language stuff in the US or in Canada and there was one person doing something about um, family experiences here in Edinburgh uh, and at the time this study was just a poster, it was not even a published study. Um, I didn't want to go to the U.S., so I emailed this one person here in Edinburgh. Uh, I told her about my ideas, realizing that it was not fully fitting with what she had done so far. But yeah, would she be open to the idea of uh, doing something on the cognitive effects of bilingualism in autism? And she said yes. So um, we built this project together, focusing on, on social cognition, and I rejected this funded position elsewhere on dementia to come to Edinburgh and be self-funded and work with uh, my PhD supervisor Sue Fletcher-Woodson, who is now my mentor. And I don't regret it any any day. Really, I would make the same choice.
1: That's really beautiful. Such a such a um, nice. It's a bit of an
0: unusual way of getting to your PhD project.
1: <laughs> yeah, but like. It shows that you really, really like what you do. And yeah. I think anyone who works with you can see that it, oh. it shows through your work. Thank you. So then the next question would be about you said you built your study. Yeah. What methodology did you use? Can you take us through how you conducted your research?
0: Yes. So for background, for context, my background was in neurobiology. So pretty much everything that I did during my PhD. I wasn't sure what I was doing, um, but the, as I said, there was nothing uh, in this field, so the first step in my research was to actually see, okay, who are autistic bilinguals? Because um, I knew that there were loads of different ways to be bilingual, but somehow in the research that was available so far, there was only two profiles represented. One were uh, bilingually raised autistic children, and the other were a polyglot savant who could uh, speak 10 languages. And I knew from neurotypical people this is not the full spectrum of uh, what it means to be bilingual. So my first study was an online survey uh, asking very broad but also some very specific questions about language profiles and language experiences um, and also what it was like for them to be bilingual and autistic as open-ended questions. Um, and I also uh, asked some questions about social life because I was still interested in the social aspect of it um, and social life quality as well. And so this was my first study, developing this online survey, uh, which was very different to working with neurons in a petri dish. Um, and that's I thought originally that online surveys were very easy to, do, to set up uh, on the outside. I quickly realized it was not the case. It was actually very difficult. Um, and through this study, I, I saw that actually uh, groundbreaking finding. There's as many ways to be bilingual for autistic people as they are for neurotypical people. Surprise, it's astonishing, right? Um, and I found in the language, uh, in, the, in the open-ended data, um, I found that, I mean, people said, it's not really my discovery, it's just people said it, um, that basically everything that is uh, a benefit from being bilingual in the real world like building connections and meeting people and having new opportunities autistic people who are bilingual find exactly the same benefits as neurotypical people who are bilingual again it shouldn't be groundbreaking but um yeah my, my first study was the one to um put this out there um and then my main research was on cognition and social cognition and so what i did for this one was that basically all the research on the effect of bilingualism on that one process in social cognition called perspective taking which is when we take the perspective of somebody else, it's very straightforward, the name says it all, Um, all the research on that sort of used different definitions of what it meant to be bilingual and used different definitions of what perspective taking was. So of course every single paper out there, in neurotypical people, found a different thing just because none of them was using the same definitions for the two key concepts in the yeah. papers. So my idea was to actually use bilingualism as a multi-dimensional uh, concept, uh, measuring things like number of languages, age of acquisition, proficiency, usage, all of this. Mm-hmm. And also I wanted to measure all of these different forms of perspective taking Um, with as few tasks as possible in the same sample so that I could very much uh, entirely compare um, the different types of perspective taking because potentially some forms would benefit from bilingualism and others would not Mm -hmm. or some form would benefit from some type of bilingualism and another form would benefit from another type of bilingualism Um, so I wanted to do all of that and I wanted to do that, of course, in autistic people, but turns out there was not even the finding or the method available in neurotypical people either. So I had to first try that with autistic, with neurotypical people. So that's what I did. I recruited loads of neurotypical adults from around Edinburgh. Uh, and I also uh, recruited loads of autistic people from all around the UK. Some of them flew to Edinburgh to take part in my study. I was... Mm-hmm was well, very blessed by the support that I got from uh, the autistic community um, and so what I found with that particular research the cognitive research was that indeed there was only some f- parts some forms of perspective taking that seemed to be sensitive to an aspect to, to an effect of bilingualism um, and there was mostly the effect of bilingualism on this particular process Uh, called perspective taking, was uh, linked with the age of acquisition of the second language. So basically the younger they had learned their second language, the better they were doing at perspective taking in adulthood, or everything else uh, considered equal. And the interesting thing was that this result was the same for autistic people and for neurotypical people. So basically the developing autistic brain was as susceptible as to the the positive effect of bilingualism as the neurotypical brain. So meaning that all of these like very true uh, raving that we have around bilingualism, bilingualism is amazing for children and you should like the brain only benefits from being bilingual, yes. And also it is true for autistic people. Uh, But of course I like, Understanding what happens at the cognitive level was like all nice and well, but I was a neurobiologist at heart. So I also wanted to look at what's happening inside the brain. So I called back some of my participants uh, to do an MRI study. Um, And for that, I had like a bunch of data. uh, Anatomical data, um, different types of anatomical data, uh, some different um, functional MRI tasks to again look at these different types of uh, perspective taking. And this time I compared um, early bilinguals and late bilinguals because it was the thing that I had found at the cognitive level was the thing that looked like it was having an effect. Um, And I haven't actually finished analyzing my data yet, even though that was like three years ago, Uh, but research takes time. And, but what I found at the neurological level was that again there was an activation difference in the brain between early and late bilinguals and it was the same for autistic and neurotypical people so it's very much preliminary data it was a tiny sample but it seemed to support in terms of brain activity what i had found in the cognitive uh at the cognitive level at the brain functioning level mm-hmm. and so yes this is what i do so i had both like survey quantitative data uh some qualitative data cognitive data behavioral stuff and uh neuroimaging and uh, it was all
1: a big adventure okay um working on autism myself i can already and being like so early on in my in my journey i'm listening to what you say and i'm like how did you do it all <laughs> and then the other part which is just like shining through my (laughs) my brain is like challenges yeah some of the some of the challenges when conducting this research because autism yeah one it's not it's understudied obviously especially in relation to like bilingualism yeah and then autism with cognition yeah and then deciding to do an mri yeah Challenges, (laughs) Challenges, Bill.
0: So, <laughs> I mean, I would say it was mostly challenges. I mean, to be fair, I decided to do a bilingualism study in autism in the UK. So like just this was I think this was the first hurdle was to decide to do something about bilingualism in the UK um, because there are some people who do bilingualism research would say, oh, I would only pick like certain language combination. I couldn't afford to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to be very welcoming, and my recruitment uh, process was very long, because um, well, I needed to find people who would be willing to take part in my research, but autistic bilingual people, there's not... There's many autistic bilingual people in the UK, they're just all around the UK. Um, Mm -hmm. So recruitment was very difficult. Um, But even in terms of methods, um, the when looking back at my phd uh actually when i was writing my thesis i had this realization moment when writing up uh that during my phd it really just felt like i was going from one hurdle to the next to the next to the next to the next and only when i was writing up, I realized i've i've like overcome all of these hurdles i have found a solution to all of these hurdles um but it only transpired very much when I was writing up. When I was in the thick of it, it was um, just mostly challenges. For example, the uh, finding tasks that were allowing me to do what I wanted to do at the cognitive level. So the different perspective taking tasks that would actually fit within the framework of social cognition that I had. Um, I spent months reading about all the tasks available. None of them were doing what I wanted to do. So I decided to then Adapt and expand a task, meaning that I had to design a new um, coding scheme for these uh, answers uh, that the participants would give and pilot it and then teach it to my research assistant. Um, It was just creating this new thing was definitely difficult, creating that new task. Um, but also one of the main hurdles, oddly, oddly enough, is was to teach myself R because I decided to follow open science practices for the whole PhD, and I had I was terrible at statistics. I had deep phobia of statistics, but still I decided that teaching myself R and doing all of my statistics in R was a good idea. Um, it was a good idea now retrospectively, <laughs> but. Um, while while I was doing it it was I think another additional challenge I remember it took me like about 2 days to figure out how to open a file in R um, and so yes this was this was interesting uh, but yes also during the MRI analysis was difficult pretty much every single step I want to say was a challenge uh, but I brought this upon myself really I decided I designed that project grinded on nothing that I had ever done before. Uh, so at best you would show that it's possible. It's possible to do it. It's just, it was a lot of hard work. Um, but luckily my supervision team was amazing. So Sue Fletcher-Woodson and Andy Stenfield, my supervisors were there every step of the way um, and giving me as much advice as they could or pointing me towards who could help me. Uh, they were absolutely fantastic and I definitely would not have been able to overcome all of these hurdles uh, if it had not been for them. Okay. So I'll do the same for you in your PhD, you know.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, But yes, I, I completely agree. Whether it's the need to learn new quantitative methods or designing something, or mm-hmm. even finding participants, yeah. or catering for the needs of the participants yeah. of the study because it's all things that are very, very important if you're working with like uh, autistic individuals.
0: Yeah, you know, as you say, indeed, like I because also I had never done research with directly collecting data with participants, so I had no idea how to do that well. And thanks to my supervisor who really trained me in. Putting saying your participants at the heart of how you conduct an appointment with your participants, um, it was so enlightening. So it was a big challenge to okay, make sure that in this very long, three and a half hour long appointment, uh, the participant would be okay. And so setting up all of these, I'm not going to call that adjustment, but just all of these... Um, not even just comfort breaks but guidelines and yes everything just leave this have this space even like just the physical space where where the appointment would take place um communicating everything very clearly with your participants um there was a lot for example for the mri study I originally I had developed this guide to the MRI scan appointment that was originally in my mind for the autistic participants to make their experience um, doing the MRI appointment um, less stressful uh, and actually I ended up sending this guide to even the neurotypical participant who was so happy to have it because most of them all of them had never had an MRI appointment so all of them Uh, really benefited from this uh, accessibility adjustment Uh, and ultimately it really taught me that when you're wanting to make your research more accessible for one group that you think will benefit from it more you're actually making your research more accessible for everybody
1: Hmm. okay final question yeah where is the impact Um, how will this work benefit
0: society so i like to think that it is impactful i don't know if it is but i like to think uh it will help people um so i'm really big big on science communication i love science communication so i've always tried to bring my research into the world as much as possible by like i'm taking part in loads of psychom opportunities around edinburgh like a pint of science or the science chats or things like this Um, but I also wanted to make sure that uh, my findings were going to the people who needed them the most now. I remember that just after my PhD I was so angry because in my opinion there was enough findings out there to show that bilingualism was not hurtful for autistic people. Uh, We didn't know if it was bringing benefits but we knew that it was at least neutral, we knew it was not negative and yet Practices were lagging behind. We still had people and pa- parents telling us that, um, their pediatricians had told them that bilingualism was bad, and I remember thinking, all I, all I want to do is gather loads of clinicians and parents and teachers in a room and tell them um, that it's okay, and then they and then everything will be fixed. Um, and I thought, well, you know what? nobody's going to do it so i'm gonna do it uh so after my phd i worked during my fellowship i got some funding to create a sort of a free webinar one for clinicians and one for teachers uh where i got other of my friends early care researchers to talk about not just their research but like the all the findings in their own field that were answering questions that we knew clinicians had or teachers had Um, and so yes we had these webinars they were so well attended so clearly it shows that um, people wanted these answers and then we created because we knew as well clinicians and teachers told us as well that um, the webinar was great but uh, most of their colleagues would not have time to listen to a two hour long webinar because they're very busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided to create a sort of very short um, guidelines for clinical and educational practice uh, that would be open access uh, online and that that would actually just fit in an A4 page. So like really uh, front and back of an A4 page. It takes three minutes to read um, and it will answer all of the questions that these professionals have and the, for which they need an answer right now. Um, so we created that with clinicians and with teachers and they're working really well. They are always constantly, they have a constant flow of downloads and the clinicians one is accredited by the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. So clearly I see this as a sign that uh, there is a need and professionals have questions and the last thing as well is that when we were working with professionals they told us that it was great wonderful they were really happy with all of these answers to their questions but they needed something to give to parents Mm -hmm. uh who were coming with these questions and so my colleague Rachel Davis and I we decided that okay fair we were also going to create resources for parents and so we gathered another working group with um So clinicians, teachers, parents and autistic people themselves, of course, uh, to develop these sort of very short um, guidelines or like information sheet for parents that Mm -hmm. exist online, but also can be printed and um, that professionals can give to parents if they need them. And so the version online currently exists in 16 languages, I think, so that parents can have access to this information in the language that they're the most comfortable in, because we know that bilingual parents might not be super comfortable with English, so there's no point in giving them the information in English. So yes, this is what we've done as well. This website as well is uh, sort of is steadily used. So yes, I think it means that people want the information and we got some more feedback saying that it was great, but some people prefer, more for video-based information instead of a text. And Mm. so we're like, well, no problem. And so we got more funding to to convert this um, text-based resource for parents into an animated video. Um, And it's been released recently. It's narrated by an autistic advocate from Scotland. Um, So it has a lovely Scottish accent. And we're really proud of this little video Again, it's, it's been used so far, apparently, throughout the world. In it, So far, we only have it in English, but people in several English countries have been using it. So, yeah, I think this research is quite niche, uh, looking at bilingualism in autism and social things. Mm-hmm. But I think that even though it might only help a few people... For the few people for whom it does matter, it's a very important question because it's about the 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 language that uh, they can use as a family mm-hmm. and that they can use to share their culture and their heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this world of migration, um, I think it's very important. So it might not be that many people who will care about this research, but for them, I think it's something that matters.
1: Mm. I one hundred percent agree. I <laughs> I do see the I do see the impact. I see a great impact in what you're doing. Thank you. Um, and I can't help but salute you for everything that you've done. It's <laughs> it's really great work. Thank you. Well, we get to this is the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So with that, we would just thank you very much for your work and thank for you. your care about autism and bilingualism. Uh, we thank the people who have tuned in and actually listened to this episode and we will see see you. you in another episode hopefully
0: thank you